Welcome to episode 11 of the Outfield Podcast. I really can't wait to bring you this episode featuring a hockey player. You know how much I love talking about hockey in relation to LGBTQ issues in sports. We've got a great story to tell you today from Brock West, a former player at Marion University in Wisconsin D3. He's got a great story to tell about his journey in coming out and being out with his team in hockey. There's a lot of great stuff in here. I do want to apologize first off. The first 10 or so minutes of the show, you've got some echoey audio from that is recording snafu for me, and I'm sorry about that. I did my best to kind of cut it out as much as I could. Uh, please do not uh, kill me for that. I'll do my best in the future to rectify those problems that just happened with the recording here. I'll do my best in the future, but this show is so good, I couldn't lose any of it. So here's episode 11 with Brock. Sorry about the audio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 11 of the Outfield Podcast, episode 4 in the Social Distancing Series. If there has been one light in this horrible time where we're all being affected by the bubonic plague, I have been able to record more of these shows, which is something I've wanted to do. And today, we have an incredible guest. Anytime I get a chance to talk to somebody who is out in hockey, is something I'm going to jump upon, because if you've heard this show, you know there are many people who are out in hockey. And I'm so glad to talk to someone whose public coming out story was only five days ago at the day of this recording from Marion University in Wisconsin D3 hockey, Brock Weston. Brock, welcome to the show. Hi, Hi there. Thanks for having me. I am really excited to have you on, but I have a dilemma. You see, <laughs> there are two people who I know who are out in hockey, and both of them are named Brock. This is a real coincidence, but it also provides a challenge because I'm going to talk about both of them in this show a lot. I hope I don't mix you up. I won't, but it's just a weird coincidence that there are two out people in hockey from Canada that I happen to know, and both of them are named Brock. That makes no sense. <laughs> kind, of, kind of ironic. It is incredibly ironic, although it's kind of fitting. Hi, Brock McGillis. I know you're listening to this show, and I'll be talking a lot about you in this show because there's nobody else who has done more for our community in hockey than him. Firstly, this Brock, I want to ask you, because five days ago you posted this publicly, what have the last five days been like for you in terms of hearing from people? Oh, I mean, it's, a, it's been a whirlwind. I, I've gotten amazing amounts of feedback, and I've only got positive feedback, which has been incredible. You know, hundreds of emails and Instagram messages and followers and Facebook messages and shares, and I was on the Pink News Snapchat story, and, you know, I've had support from complete strangers and some of my best friends. And, and then family and everything in between, and it's been incredible. It has really been incredible, and it shows you just how much these stories affect so many people, particularly when it is a sport like hockey where there are just so few of them, and we're going to get into that in this show. I always like to start these shows by talking about, uh, first, where people live, where they grew up, their family life, and it allows me to make a joke about this horrible bubonic plague we're dealing with because you are from, and I looked this up, a very, very small town in Saskatchewan. It's easy to social distance when no one lives in your town. And by no one, I mean it's like a thousand people. But, I mean, when you think of rural Canada, I can imagine your town's probably the first thing that you and many others would think of. Because when I think about rural places, I mean, I don't have a good idea because I don't live in one. But for you, rural Canada, explain it to people who don't know what it's like. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. It's... Yeah, yeah Maidstone, Maidstone is pretty, pretty much, much the epitome, epitome of, 
rural Canada, but um, we, have we have a post, post office and an arena. Uh, we, we just got, got Subway, Subway a few years ago, so that was a pretty big deal for all the village people. That's a huge um, accomplishment. Yeah, it was a big step. I mean, it was pretty popular there for a while until the novelty wore off. How far as um, near is Tim Hortons, if I could be even more stereotypical? Yeah, uh, the closest one, so we have one east and one west. The closest one is to the west, and it's about 50 minutes. 50? Yeah, 5 zero, 50 minutes. I didn't think it was allowed in Canada that you could live in a place where there is no Tim Hortons within half an hour. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, uh, I, I know people in our town that drive all the way there for it almost every day. Every day? Some, Some people, people, yeah. How much more Canadian can you possibly get? And yes, the picture of you for Outsports and the header photo and all the ones on social had you with the greatest hockey smile I've ever seen. So that's one thing. But people driving an hour each day to go get Tim Hortons is more Canadian than that. Yep, yep I, think I think so. So, in terms of being in Maidstone, Saskatchewan, which, to give you an idea of rural, and I'm going to compare this to Humboldt, which sadly had the horrible tragedy a couple years ago, it still affects us all who follow hockey. That town, I think, is around 6,000 people, and yours is a little north of 1,000. And, I mean, when we heard about Humboldt, it was, this is the epitome of small-town Canada. Well, nope, there's actually smaller than that. Yeah, yeah no, no, um... I've played, you know, lots of hockey against people from Humboldt and all that, and we are, yeah, we just broke the thousand mark not too many years ago. And that is truly incredible. I can't think of many towns in the U.S. off the top of my head that are smaller than a thousand people, but that gives you an idea of your upbringing. So talk about your family life uh, growing up in Maidstone the, well, your entire life, and that's affected a lot for you and affected a lot about your journey. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, you said it already, rural part of Canada and Saskatchewan here were pretty sheltered from a lot of, you know, different cultures and things like that. So that was its own thing. But I mean, I have, I'm thankful for my upbringing. You know, I have amazing parents and I have my older brother and sister, um, you know, they tease the crap out of me. But I mean, it is what it is. What else would they do, you know? And, you know, I worked on the farm. Uh, for years, I still am. I'm doing it right now. I check cows at three in the morning and then get up at eight for chores. And um, I, you know, I spend a lot of time outside and and doing sports and stuff like that. We had dial-up internet till about ten years ago here, and yeah, I don't know. It's been it's been a lot. I mean, like you said too. You know, your closest thing is, you know, like Tim Hortons, and that is an hour away. Like. We did a lot of traveling to do anything, right? You know, I lots of friends at school in the States that hadn't left the state or they hadn't been to Chicago and it was only a two and a half hour drive and our closest Costco is two and a half hours pretty much. So that's it's a day trip for us, but it's, you know, it's totally different upbringings. I would say that's totally different upbringing, so much so that I can imagine Ron McLean wrote a Hockey Night in Canada opening essay about a town like yours, even if it wasn't exactly yours. I have to imagine that's happened at some point. Well, I, I actually played, when I played uh, junior hockey in Lloydminster, we hosted Hockey Day in Canada, and I met Don Cherry and Ron McLean. Oh, we'll talk about Don Cherry later, but, well, it, we're going to have to. But, see, see, that gives you an idea. And Lloydminster, how far away is that? I mean, it happens that because I follow hockey, I ended up learning Canadian geography by accident, basically. 
and Lloydminster is a somewhat decent-sized town. How far is that away from you? That's, That's our closest in Warren. It's about 50 minutes. 50 minutes. So that, and that gives you an idea of just of just how rural this is. Like you think of rural towns, and then there's this. So this obviously affects you in the way that you grow up and the way that you're raised. Is again, rural environment very different than urban Canada? Very different than anywhere uh, in in many parts, not just Canada, but in North America. So for you. You grow up, you work on the farm, and you play sports. You wanted to talk about baseball, but this is Canada, so we're going to talk about hockey. So were those the two that you played? Yeah, yeah I mean, I played baseball and hockey outside of school, and then I did some golfing and whatnot. But And then in school, I played volleyball and badminton and sports like that. So that's, I think everyone played volleyball and badminton, and, and I even I did that in my, in my high school. And, and in middle school, we did that. It was one day's worth of... Uh, diversion from the fact that nobody really liked the gym classes but i don't know maybe that's because i sucked at gym yeah i sucked at gym. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about hockey let's talk about growing up playing hockey and for you you play you there obviously isn't a rink, a rink in your town but in order to play at a somewhat high level you got to travel a lot so talk about the experience of playing hockey for you growing up um well, well we, we do, do have a rink in our town actually it's, it's kind of like, like it's, it's an, an old, old rink, but it's actually in pretty good shape considering. considering. So, so I played all my minor hockey um, up until I was 13. So my 13-year-old year, I went and played AA Bantam in Unity. And that's about an hour drive. Um, so we'd have to go there like two or three times a week for practice and drive home. And that's actually how I lost my teeth was the year I was playing there. I, uh, we were in a car accident on the way home from a game in Wilkie and a drunk driver hit us head on and they hit the vehicle in front of us as well. And so I actually like hit my face on something in the cab and that's what knocked my teeth out ironically enough. So it didn't happen via hockey. It happened from something, you know, a lot worse, arguably, thankfully, obviously you were okay and everyone else was okay. But I mean, I, I had to mention it when you saw the hockey smile, so I figured, ah, you got hit in the face by a puck. But then I was like, wait, you have to wear full face shields when you play in, in the NCAA, even in D3. Yeah, yeah no, I, this happened in 2008, so I haven't had my front jibs for a lot of years. But, um, yeah, that year, lost the teeth I, on the way home from a hockey game, actually, which was kind of ironic, too. more ironic. But, uh, no, and then the following year, I played in North Battleford, um, played Bantam Double A there. And, and that, that was, that's, that's another, another hour, hour and 10 minute drive. drive. And then my first year midget, I got cut from the AAA team in North Battleford. And so I ended up playing Bantam AA in uh, like Turtleford, which is about an hour drive. And so we were all like, okay, to give you an idea, Saskatchewan's a big place. All Canadian provinces are big. You could think of South and North, I guess. And all of this is like central Northern Saskatchewan because the biggest towns are what? Regina and Saskatoon, and they're way further south. Yeah, yeah Saskatoon's, Saskatoon's like two hours from us, like just south and east. So yeah. when you talk about the commitment that your family makes to have you play hockey, and this is a story, again, you hear about in a lot of Canadian towns, particularly ones like yours, the commitment is huge. It, almost, it seems like a rite of passage that all these young kids play hockey, but for your parents, you're driving a long way just to play. This isn't, you know, where, oh, I could get up and drive five minutes to the rink if you live outside of Toronto or if you live outside of, you know, biggish cities. You're driving an hour 
you know, to get there to play. Yeah, yeah and, and you know, you drive to play, you drive to practice, and you know, you got the drive back too. And yeah, my parents, well, not just me, like my siblings both, you know, played, my sister played ringette, and my brother played hockey. Um, yeah, they, you know, they went through the ringer keeping us like they were in the, we, we traveled a lot of miles together. Mm-hmm. And that's, and, and you, and again, to be part of that, it, it, does it, does it feel like looking back on it now, it's like, that's a, kind of a Canadian ritual, like driving around all these small rinks to practice and play. I mean, I know it sounds stereotypical and I try not to be like focusing on all of that for this, but it, it gives you kind of an idea. Like this is the every kind of small town Canadian story. And this seems like a good epitome of it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you, yeah, yeah, like you said, it is kind of stereotypical, but it's also like a kind of a reality for you know us when we're in rural areas. It is, it is, it's a pretty incredible story when you think about it, just the commitment to play, you know, let alone getting to where you get to. So now, as I talk about growing up, we get into the story of your sexuality, and when I read the Outsport story, you talk about not really knowing like what was different about you until much later, but. When you look back on it now, now that you've sort of, in one way, completed one step of your journey, do you look back on it now and start to look back at the times when you were younger and you now could put pieces together of that story when you realized you were different, in a way? Um, yes and no. I mean, I'm still, like, I never really knew, and that, you know, that won't change. And just, like, growing up, I was always... You know, people, people always commented that, that I could associate with, you know, any groups, um, any, any kinds of people. people. I could, you know, sit and chat with grandparents or I could, when I was, you know, like a teenager or whatever, I could take care of young kids and keep them engaged. You know, I was I was kind of personable with all, all ages and all types of people. And I guess, I don't know if that, you know, created some sort of empathy in, in me or, or what it was, but I guess that's kind of one thing that I'm like, maybe I understood what it was like. You know, you know, to, to find, find something different in someone and, and not, not, uh, not like it or, um, you know, ignore it or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So when you think about just the, your exposure to any sort of element of the community, I, I cannot imagine that's something very prevalent in rural Canada. So this is not something you grew up knowing a lot about. And I'm not sure it's something you, I mean, you had really the ability to know about. Yeah, it, you know, like I said at the beginning, like very sheltered area. So you're right. I never, never really interacted with a lot of people that I knew um, that were out or anything like that. But I, you know, ironically enough, I had a classmate that I graduated with. Our graduating class was about 36 people. So it was like the biggest in 20 years. It's the biggest Um, in 20 years. And to give you an idea, my uh, high school graduating class was 463, and that was small. Yeah, no, we uh, we only have about two hundred kids from grade seven to twelve, so well, we were a big class. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, we yeah. So I actually had a classmate when we graduated after graduation. He came out on Facebook, and so um, I think that was kind of kind of cool because it already you know opened a lot of people's eyes around here because he was a really well liked kid and still is and. Um, so that was, you know, that was kind of cool and comforting to know that, you know, people, people under, or, you know, were willing to try to understand, I guess. And, you know, I remember, I remember my dad asking me, it was on Facebook and he asked if I'd seen the post and I said, no. And so I, he pulled it up and he asked me, what do you think of that? 
and I said, well, I don't know. It doesn't really change anything. He's still my friend, you know? And, and so we had a talk then about it um, and how it was very different during his time, you know, growing up and how it's changed. And, and it's, you know, he, he said it was cool to see that it didn't really change how I felt about him. Does that like, and now that you look back on that particular moment, did that seem enlightening to you in any way? Or did that seem like now, wow, there's a moment of hope for me if I, you know, because your, your journey happens to be a little bit more different because for so many, they talk about, you know, really young, you have these questions young and for you, just because of your upbringing, where you are, you don't really get that exposure. So is that a moment that you look back on now being like, okay, maybe there was a chance. Maybe there was something out there that gave me a little bit of a, of hope that for what I went through was going to be worth it. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And yeah, no, it definitely did. And I, I mean, the connection when I talked with my dad about it, you know, that kind of gave me some hope that they were willing to listen and, you know, try to understand and, and they did and they have, and yeah, that was, it was a definitely a big moment. Cause I can imagine that they don't have those conversations all that often because I would assume, and maybe rightly or wrongly, like if you're living in a community like that, people stay there and they stay there really their entire lives. You don't see a lot of movement in or out necessarily. So for your parents, I mean, that must have been a conversation that they almost never had because they were never exposed to it either. Right. And it's, that's exactly it. Like I remember they told me one of my mom or one of my mom's friends when she was growing up, um, basically had to move away because of like the, you know, getting ridiculed and, and, you know, just treated so poorly, they moved to a to Saskatoon to a bigger city because you know it was just so uncomfortable to live here like that. So, and but she understood, I think, a little better because she was friends with them and and whatnot. So, yeah, there isn't a lot of exposure, and and people, you know, people tend to stay here. I mean, my generation and you know a lot of my classmates have ventured out, which is nice to see. But there's still a lot that are sticking around, and I mean, there's nothing wrong with that if if they're willing to be you know, um, empathetic and, and, you know, consider other people. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk now about two different things, which we're going to get to a similar discussion. First of all, and you mentioned this in this piece, there's the language that was used to talk about gay people in places like where you live. And then there's also the language that's used in hockey. So I want to talk firstly about the language that was used in these rural areas. And it's something that for me growing up 20 minutes away from, you know, one of the biggest cities in the U S it's not something I could ever think about because my brain does not comprehend rural areas. As I've joked, if an area does not have an Indian restaurant within 30 minutes, it's probably not a place I can live. It's just, that's just how I'm wired. But for you, I mean, you, you would talk about, I think the line was, you've heard gay slurs that you probably didn't even think existed. Is that? Yep. So talk a little bit about that, because I think for people like me and for people, and a lot of the, the experiences you hear about come from people who live in cities or live in suburbs of big cities. So you're exposed to a lot more. Uh, that's, I think, is something important to talk about because, again, in these insular rural communities, these things don't really change all that much. No, exactly. And I mean, yeah, like like I said in that article, like I've heard every every curse about, you know, gay people and whatnot under the sun. And, and like you said, a lot you probably have never heard. And used differently, you know, used maliciously um, about people that aren't even gay. You know, you talk about um, like a, the government making a decision they didn't like, and it was all of those effing homos or things like that. And and so it just, you know, every time it just picked away at me and it just buried me in my shell. So 
I think in it, one thing we, you know, you already asked about it. I've had a lot of people saying they read my story and done a lot of self-reflecting. And I've had people that I've, you know, left with kind of friends on bad terms because of, you know, just how they treat people, not even myself. And I've had them message me and say, you know, it's made them reflect a lot of on their vocabulary and just how they treat people. And so I think, you know, that's been a huge positive too. You know, I, I love the feedback and everything and, and the support, but, you know, ultimately this has become, and I kind of hoped it would something that, you know, would inspire people um, that are closeted or, you know, wanting to come out or anything like that. And also, you know, an opportunity for people to, that aren't, or, you know, aren't even allies right now that maybe they can reflect a little bit and, and find themselves in a position to be an ally for someone. We're going to get to that because that's one of the, the great parts of this story. And it talks to something in hockey, too, that I want to get to. Uh, speaking of that, that's the language outside the rink. Inside the rink, it's not much better. Actually, you might be able to say it's worse. And that's also something because if, you know, rural communities are insular and these are places that are, you know, tradition, people don't move, people don't leave. Hockey is almost entirely like that. And so for some people, sports were their escape from the questions that were you know, circling around in their head. Hockey, uh, you can't escape that because the language is, is pretty bad at the rink too. Do you have any, like, one story that talks about just something emblematic of that from your time growing up that, that kind of elucidates that point? Or is it just something that was so ubiquitous you heard it and you just, you never thought about it because you heard it every day? Yeah, it's more that. I mean, it's more the latter. Like, it was an everyday thing. Like, yeah, like, you know f word and you know fag and all those things and homo and oh yeah queer and everything like every every you know slander term or whatever that you can think of was used and it was used to talk about you know the enemy basically which is your opponent i guess but it was never with positive intent and i don't really have a particular story i guess because it was pretty much an everyday thing and yeah and so when do you, give an idea of like, when do you start hearing that at the rink? Because when we talk about when people like Brock McGillis talk about hockey culture being insular and a cycle, you know, you start hearing this language really, really young. Like it's just a part of you and you pick up on it because hockey is a sport where you look up to people who have been there. And a lot of the coaches, a lot of the parents of players have been there and played themselves. Do you have any, like, do you have a guess or a guesstimate of like, when do you start hearing this language being used at the rink? Or do you, is it so ubiquitous that you can't even make a guess? Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's early. Like, it's pretty much as soon as the parents aren't in the room kind of thing. And even sometimes then, and, you know, like you said, you you know, young minds are, are malleable and they hear those things from the parents and the players and everything. So, you know, when I was growing up, you hear it outside the rink, you hear it on the farm, you hear it in town, you hear it at the ball diamond and... And you go to the rink and you use it and everyone used it. And it was, you know, it was just a common shot at someone. And it was from a very young age. Do you have any, I think, I try to understand why it was used that way. And I will probably never be able to understand that just because of where I grew up and, and how I was brought into the world and how I kind of came to understand the world. Now that you have a chance to, you know, interact with people about it, do you have any idea why I, it, it just became so ubiquitous, not just necessarily for where you grew up, but in hockey ranks? Because I, I can't, I'm trying, I've been 
trying to figure it out, and I've talked with people about it, and I, I can't pin my way to a somewhat decent answer. It's, it's something I don't know a lot about yet. Do you have a, a decent idea for that? Well, I think, um, I think it comes down to like applying the stereotype to it. You know, they apply the, you know, more effeminate type gay people and with them being, you know, not necessarily as tough, um, you know, in their own right or in this, in this context. And then, you know, if someone wasn't playing tough, well, they're playing like a pussy. And then if they're playing like a pussy, well, they're playing, you know, they're a, fuck, they're a cocksucker. And it just kind of, it just cycles like that. And it just, you know, the rabbit hole and it just keeps going. I kind of think that's where it starts, just with the, the stereotype of the, you know, effeminate gay people. And it's so funny because as I joked with somebody, I said, well, the toughest people in the world of hockey are going to be the people who, like you, have had to deal with so much more than anyone else has ever had to deal with. So, I mean, personally, if I'm creating a hockey team and I know there's somebody out there who's gone through what you've gone through, well, you're going to be the toughest player on the, on the planet. I don't care whether you're playing on a broken leg or whatever. You've gone through something way tougher than that. At least this is yeah. how I came to view it. Yeah, and it's, it's an everyday mental battle with, the people around me and my own head, you know, because you hear those things and it just wears at you. So when did you accept for yourself that you were gay? Oh, I was probably 20 or 21, 21 probably. So you were when in I was, college at this point. Yeah, I was, I was my, in my freshman year at 21. It was probably towards the end of that year. And I, and I kind of realized, you know, it's more than that. And, and I understand the spectrum, you know, and I, I kind of initially, you know, as I was learning about myself, saw myself more in the middle, but um, definitely towards the gay end. And, and, you know, I came to terms with that, I guess, probably, or, you know, around late 21, almost 22. So what kind of inferences did you had when you were, where you were younger? Because you talk about hearing the languages you did, you talk about, you know, playing in the, these ways but you never really had a chance to ask those questions like was it just like I'm different or I had an idea that something was different or what was it like before you got to college yeah well like I was you know I wasn't sexually active even you know with like with girls until I was uh like 19 or 20 19 I think so you know I was I was kind of a late bloomer as they say as it was and I never I never had much interest, you know, I had a lot of drive. Um, and I guess, you know, kind of one of my hiding at lines was always, you know, I don't have time for a girlfriend. I'm, you know, or I don't, I can't afford a girlfriend right now, you know, cause I was driven. I was, you know, I was working hard at, at, you know, pursuing hockey and, and my studies. And like, while I played junior hockey, I took online classes. So that took up my time. I wasn't hanging out with girls and, and all that. And I think it kind of also gave me time to reflect and understand myself a little better. And, and moving away from home did that too. I think the other thing that yeah, Brock McGillis talks about, that's mentioned number three. I'm going to hit my quota within the next 10 minutes, I would bet. Uh, he talks <laughs> about the feeling of hockey, but being different. And hockey is not a sport where if you're different, you're necessarily accepted, uh, so to speak. And you at least, I mean, and this sounds kind of crass to say but it's true like outward appearances would be you know there's not much different about you you know you seem like the kind of kid and the guy who would play hockey right and be a part of that world did you and but you start to think about these things and 
hockey being a sport where everybody's kind of supposed to be the same way, if you feel different, you kind of feel isolated no matter whatever that feeling different is. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, I'm, you know, I'm that more masculine type as they, you know, label it. But I think as I grew up and, you know, seeing more on, on media and, and movies and whatnot of, you know, less, you know, more masculine gay people being portrayed. And I think that kind of helped me understand it too. Um, just that, you know, not all gay people are effeminate. And I, you know, I kind of attributed to that growing up because that's what I was exposed to and told and, and things like that. But as I moved away from home and met people and, and it expanded it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like, like you said, in the room, you know, there's something different. You don't know what it is. You know, you still have great friends, but you feel like there's something missing between it. And, you know, maybe it's, maybe it was the connection with myself that I never got to, you know, piece together before I could fully connect with a lot of other people. So how did you get to um, D3 University in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin? Um, I was recruited there when I played my last year junior A in Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. Okay, so you're re- so we're far away now from rural Saskatchewan. Well, if you're in semi-rural uh, Manitoba. Yep, <laughs> pretty much. It's about a ten-hour drive. Oh, ten hours. Okay, reasonable. Yeah, my yeah, parents, parents do it on a weekend. On a weekend. <laughs> uh, on a weekend. Okay. Good lord. Yeah. I can't even comprehend that. Yeah, no, so I got recruited there. Coach, uh, it was actually Eric Large, and he came down to recruit me. And then the assistant coach, Lincoln Wynn, uh, came a couple times and introduced himself, and, you know, they were in contact on the phone and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, so have you uh, ever been into the U.S. at that point? Uh, yeah, I've been I've been all over the world pretty much, I, but not for school or hockey or anything like that. So, I mean, you never know because when you come from towns like that, some people might not be, I mean, you travel a lot just to get to the things you need, but how many people like that are able to travel around the world? So, you know, you're exposed to something a little bit different than these people who, uh, and you were talking about it, like on your team, like they haven't traveled to Chicago. They hadn't left the state of Wisconsin. Like that, it's, it's funny how you ended up having a bigger perspective from this really tiny town than some of these people who came from close to where, you know, the university is. Yeah, you're so right. Like I, you know, I have friends here in town that have never, never been to the States or anything like that. And yeah, no, I'm fortunate enough. You know, my, my mom likes, loves to travel. And so does my dad's mom, my grand, my grandma. Um, and my grandma goes to a pretty much a new country every year, it seems like. And my mom loves to travel and they kind of gave me the travel bug. And I'm thankful for that because I absolutely love it and I'm going to keep doing it. (laughs) Well, when we're allowed to do it again with, you know, yeah. the bubonic plague. So No kidding. Well, I, I already had it, so I think I'm in you the You had court. it? Yeah, I had I had it. Really? Well, yeah, you told me this off the top because I would have started with that, but now I'm sorry if you wanted to get to more of the discussion about um yeah, we'll get to it, but now I have to I have to ask you this question because this is going to be an important time capsule piece. For those who don't actually know what it's like to catch COVID-19, what is it like? Oh, it was brutal. I mean, yeah, it, I was, it was about 12 days total. Um, I started with a sore throat and a stuffy nose that, you know, kind of went away as the day went on. Um, and then about the third night in, I got fever sweats, like really bad, like basically soaked my bed. I was just sleeping with nothing on me because I was soaked. And I lost my sense of smell and my sense of taste. And I had no appetite for about 
five days. I there was like three days in a row I never ate anything. Um, I lost like ten pounds, and then towards the tail end of it, I started to get you know that uh, chest pressure they talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, shortness of breath like if I took a really deep breath it just felt like I couldn't get air down to the bottom of my lungs and then it, you know it would kind of ensue a little cough and I never had the cough that they talked about um, so that's what made me you know think I didn't have it I didn't have those the cough and the chest pressure until I was almost done and on my birthday on March 19th I was home I just got home a couple days earlier and I was still feeling pretty crappy so I called on my birthday to get tested and I went the next day and got tested. And then on the Sunday I had a med school interview, uh, online through like a zoom style thing. And then on Monday I got the results that I would tested positive. So I did my med school interview while I was positive with COVID. That is insane. It was a uh, quite the week, quite the 10 days actually. So you, got, so you got it obviously in Wisconsin then before you, you went home. No, so actually we'd went to, our spring break is like a week earlier. It was like the 7th of March or something like that. Mm-hmm. So we actually drove down to Nashville and stayed at one of my teammates' friend or girlfriend's place. Mm-hmm. So we, were, we were in Nashville for about four days and then we drove back. And the day we got back is when they announced that like probably shouldn't travel anywhere. Uh-huh. And, and you know then they're like oh maybe you should uh isolate and all this but they didn't really define it and then so we got back on wednesday well monday morning is when prime minister trudeau announced that all canadians abroad should come home within the next whatever and i'd already been packing my stuff in my apartment so i just packed my truck up and i left at two o'clock that day and drove across the border so you drove all the way home with COVID 19. Yep. And it was brutal because I had a wicked migraine. Like my eyes hurt so bad. I wore sunglasses until I virtually couldn't see at night because my eyes were so sore. And how long is that drive from Fond du Lac to where you live? Uh, It's about 22-ish hours. All right. So this podcast just got completely sidetracked because that is totally nuts. (laughs) Yeah. No, I don't know what you saw on my social media. I was... I literally, I did interviews with um, CTV, CBC, um, the Western producer, a couple radio stations. Like I was on national. You're already prepared for what you're dealing with now because you, you got sick with the bubonic plague. Yeah, basically. I mean, I beat the plague, so I got I got a lot to, to go on here. Well, well, you've got, well, hopefully you now have beaten the plague forever, but we don't know that. So <laughs> I mean, it, it's funny how you get it. And the closest anyone had gotten to me to getting it was my grandmother's dog trainer. And that's not really that close at all. So, I mean, that, that, that if you haven't been taking this seriously, and if you're listening to the show, I'm assuming you've taken this seriously already. Like, that's your everything you have just said is evidence to take this seriously. And most of the symptoms you talked about, the loss of uh, sense of smell and taste, some of these other things are all basically you know, what are now known as this COVID-19 symptoms. So you had it. It's just that we didn't necessarily at the time know necessarily what those symptoms were. Which, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's great. So you caught it in Tennessee in March. Oh, and Tennessee's opening up soon. Oh, isn't that funny? Um, hashtag tighten up. I will never, ever turn down an opportunity to make fun of the Tennessee Titans. Never. Uh, <laughs> that That is the only thing I can get off of the Titans at this point because my team, the Jaguars, is a pile of garbage so 
let's get back now to off of COVID-19, which is something that was crazy and I didn't know about. And I probably should have looked further down your Twitter feed than I actually did to figure this out. Bad journalist of me. Um, so you're now playing in Marion, and this is around the time you start accepting your sexuality, understanding your sexuality. Do you have any moments of, like, awakening, as some people would call it? Like, this is the moment where I knew, or these are the series of events that happened that, you know, got me to figure out, okay, now I know what was different about me this entire time. No, it was never, like, you know, singular events. It was just kind of always along the way. I, you know, just kind of came to understand it and and accept it, I guess. I don't know. It was... Yeah, it was kind of just a journey, I guess. So what were parts of that journey like for you? Uh, difficult. I would imagine, but is there any like store uh, any like specific kind of events in in that journey that happened and you now go like, "Okay, now I see things a little bit differently," or is it just being exposed to this wider world in a way that happens when you just genuinely go to college and you're exposed to the wider world? Um you know, it had a lot to do with that and just being away from home and, and being able to be a little more open and, and you know, go experience things that I wouldn't get to here. Um, and it also, you know, kind of came with when I told my parents um, at Christmas that year when I was home, I actually told them I was bisexual because at the time I kind of thought I was, you know, that was before I fully understood it. Um, you know, understanding the spectrum and, and myself on it. And as I came to accept it, I, you know, I kind of found myself on it. Um, so you had to come out twice then, which difficult to come well, out once in many ways. You yeah, say, yeah. Basically, I, you know, told them that. And then I, you know, my dad asked me, he's like, are you sure you're, you're not gay and you just don't want to say it? And I, at the time I was like, no, I, like, not that I know of, like, I'm pretty confident. But then, you know, ironically enough, he was right. And so then I, you know, as I was talking to my parents about it and trying to get them to understand and whatnot, it just kind of helped me explain to them, I guess. And, you know, it helped them understand. And, yeah. So was, was those the first people you came out to, or did you come out to anybody else before that? No, I had some friends uh, that helped me for sure that I came out to. Um, I had a friend in Portageville Prairie that, you know, claims, claims she knew before I did and, you know, kind of helped me find it there and, you know, like learn. examples of what, how you, how you can tell before you, you know, you can tell. Cause yeah, I, I don't know, but she, she claims she knew and well, I guess she was right, but, um, you know, she's been a good friend along the way, a great friend and, and still is and you know help me help me learn a lot about myself and, and help me have a space where I wasn't judged so that you know that is one thing I'm just super thankful for and the other thing that I have to say is as I heard that too when I was coming out to people and I can it's hard to be able to pin down you know because I, I always I like the, the, the story where I, I could say where I knew that I, I knew I liked girls at least was I was the guy who brought the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue at like age 10 to summer camp to make me feel cool when I wasn't actually cool. And, you know, I didn't do that because I, I wanted, I did it because I want to feel cool, but I did it because I actually liked it. And then, you know, the other thing comes along and I, and for me, as again, people said, are you sure you're not gay? And I took that as like a, I didn't take it as a slight against bisexuality. I took it as a, uh, one of those questions where it's like, they might not legitimately know, but I said, it's like, it's only a thing that you can know personally and it's your own journey. Yeah. Um, and, 
And that's the thing that's tricky with bisexuality because that journey is, is a little bit different for other people. Um, and again, I think it's important to hear pieces of stories like that because for some people, and there's, there's one story out there and the name is, I think it's Anthony Bowens. If I'm getting the name wrong, I'm truly sorry. But somebody's come out bisexual and then you explore and then you realize, okay, no, things are different. Like that's perfectly okay. And you might not know. And as we now know, sexuality is a spectrum. And definitions, you know, might not mean much to some people, and some people might like like definitions, but, I mean, for you, it turns out that you had more to explore, and it, it just come, happens from where you came from, and the journey, it all happened pretty fast, I would assume, so if it's happening all this fast, you might go for the first answer, even if it's not necessarily true, does that, does that make sense? Yeah, no, exactly, and, and like, I kind of, that was the first thing I found that, you know, related to me at all because I pushed, I totally pushed away the idea that I was gay just because of how I heard people talk about gay people and growing up in this area and, and everything like that. It, you know, it's, it's a lot and I didn't want to be, and I said it in that article, I didn't want to be what everyone so openly hated. And that's what that language does. I mean, in, even if you don't figure it out immediately, that stuff sticks with you. And that's why the language is so important and that's why we tell people please don't use this if you can find another synonym which you can because though that exact story i think is is a better indicator of anything as to why that language is really really harmful because you had no clue until you got to college and then you doubt yourself and then you try to find answers in places where there might not be answers and then and then you continue to kind of not lie to yourself but trick yourself you know and that's what that language does and this is before we even get to the hockey portion of this, which, I mean, for you had to add even more because, you know, hockey culture is such that it doesn't really matter where you go. The language still is pretty much the same. So even these teammates and people you got to know really well, you still heard that language when you were playing at Marion. And now you really start to see what your, your sexuality is. And that had to make it even worse because these are the people who you're going to battle with every day and you're still hearing this. Yeah, exactly. And it, you know, it's not, and I got, you know, right now is a good time to give props. Like my team couldn't have accepted it better. And, you know, I'm thankful for that. Like, it, like immensely thankful because it could have been, it could have been a huge turning point. It could have been the end of my hockey career and it could have been the end of my, you know, enjoyment at Marion, but it wasn't. It was a, you know, a big stepping to where I could enjoy it even more because I was, you know, living authentically. Mm -hmm. And I think the other part of this with the language is because it's so pervasive and everyone says it, like, you don't know whether they actually legitimately would hate you or whether they're saying it because that's what hockey players say. And that right. is immense self-doubt that you don't get in almost any other space. If you hear gay slurs from any other space, you would assume, okay, they actually hate gay people, you can ignore them. In hockey, it's so pervasive, you don't actually have a good answer for that question. Even if the large majority of people are going to accept you, that's just the language because that's the language of acceptance in that space. And it's another reason why the language issue is so pervasive. And I think your story, among all of the ones that I've been able to tell on this show is important because this is what when when we talk about it, when Brock McGillis talks about it, anybody in hockey talks about this this is the story they're telling and now you can put a face and an actual name 
to the hypothetical stories that exist, right? Because if you've gone through it and you came from this, in some ways, idyllic Canadian background, then everyone, almost everyone's going to have a story similar to this. Right. And like you said, like, even growing up, I used it before I knew, because if you didn't, it, it was kind of a raised question marks, you know, like, why don't they talk like we talk? You know, it's, it's hockey talk, it's hockey banter, it's stuff like that. But I haven't used it for years now. And, and I've had teammates that have, you know, attempted to completely remove it from their vocabulary. And I've, I'm, they've done a pretty good job. And, you know, like, I hope that that continues. And I hope even with me not playing there next year, that they continue to do that and, you know, be open to that. So when we talk about your journey with coming out to this team, and there's some interesting details from this story that I want to get to before we get to the, the actual coming out speech, you, you mentioned the things that people at your team speculated or not like openly asked you, but like talk a little bit about when you say that they were spreading rumors about your sexuality, because I want to know about that. What was that like? Because they didn't say it, they'd like burrow at it a little bit in your language. Like, first of all, what were they doing? And second, why did they do that? Um, well, a lot of it was just like, some of it was when I wasn't there. And it, um, some of it was when my roommate was there and, and he would tell me because he knew, he knew it was getting to a point where it might start coming back to me, you know, directly. Um. But it was, it was, you know, it was just small remarks like about, you know, liking the other side of something or liking the wrong thing. And they'd be like, oh, Brock knows about that. Or it just, I, I, I can't even think of a particular example, um, you know, that I was personally there for. There's one that sticks with me that my roommate told me about. And I'm really glad he did because it was one of the, one of the turning points for me where I was like, that's super messed up that they would say that is I had a really good friend of mine, a girl, she, we were, we've been best friends for a long time and we're still really good friends. She took me, her family has season tickets to the green Bay Packers and she took me to a game and we were front row end zone. And I don't know if you know, well, you'd talk about football. Yes, I do. I know what you're about to say. Well, and we're at Lambeau field and I'm front row. And so where I'm hoping for a Lambo leap, right? Like that's so cool. And Lawson's like my roommate had said that to someone, they were all watching the game together at someone's apartment. And Lawson's like, yeah, Brock was, you know, was telling me that he hopes that they get a Lambo leap. And one of the guys said, yeah, I bet he'd love if a guy jumped up in his lap or something. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you didn't jump up and punch someone when they say that, like that's, that's come on. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was, that was the thing. It was malicious. Like it was, it was to make fun of me directly. And so do you know why they did that? Well, they just like, everyone just wants to be funny, I guess. And I wasn't there. So they knew that, or they thought that there was going to be no repercussions for that. But I, I talked to those people after, after I came out and I told them that like the things they say when people aren't around still get back to them. And I mentioned it That's in my speech. Like I mentioned it in my speech that, you know, it's, it's ironic that you guys are doing this because I was very connected on campus. Like I hung out with a lot of different groups of people and I just found it 
alarming that they thought I wouldn't get back to me. <laughs> so I, I, I don't understand. That's just odd. And it's like, you'd think, like, this is the tight group. Like, that's what hockey is about. It's the team. Nothing leaves the dressing room except this did. And, oof. That, that, one, that one actually shook me up. I wasn't expecting it to be that bad. I was expecting bad, but I wasn't expecting, holy crap, like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, and, and it, it really, it hit my roommate right when he said it. And he said, like, my roommate told me that as soon as he said it, it just made him, he just was not, he did not want to be there. And he actually, you know, had halftime left, like, because he couldn't sit there. Your roommate is a hero for that. I, I give him a shout oh. out for, for that. Yeah, I give him a million shout outs. He is my best friend. And, like, we've been through some of the highest highs and some of the lowest lows together, not just for me, but for him, too. And, yeah, I couldn't, like, to have a person like that that I lived with was, like, a an absolute blessing. I can't even, I can't even describe it. Cause like, we're so close. I don't know. It's, I mean, I, I, I mean, everybody wants to have a friend like that and to have somebody who you can talk to, especially at a moment like that, where I cannot imagine what you're feeling at that point. Like it's, it must be the most horrible mix of being scared, being afraid, but also being violently mad. And like, thankfully that never happened with me. But with you, I mean, that – and when you talk about just having that, that moment where you threw a phone against the wall and you just could not take it anymore, like, it, it's it, – we take it when people snap, like, that's accumulation of events that have you, that have you snap. And oh. I – again, like, I'm thankful I never had that. But for you, like, that's a moment where you just cannot hold back anymore, and that's years and years' worth of trauma that just comes out in a moment like that. And now you look back on it and in some ways it's a bit like semi-therapeutic because it got a lot of these negative emotions out even if you might have damaged the door. I mean, small price to pay for your own mental well-being at that point, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, I, I can't believe... And the other thing you talked about with this, and again, this is something I will never understand as, my, as bisexual because, I mean, you had sex with a woman, I wouldn't want it, but for you, like, the one thing I always think about with hockey and how hockey players talk and how hockey players think. And I've never been in those dressing rooms, but you hear enough stories of how this works. You know, I cannot imagine, like the, the, the story that I always would imagine is if a gay man, a gay hockey player has sex with a woman just to keep up appearances, I cannot imagine how mentally damaging that is. And you might've had it at a time when you were in a different phase of your exploration, but like, Somebody who knows they're gay from a much younger age just has to have sex with women to, you know, keep up appearances and to keep people off the scent has to be, again, one of the most mentally damaging things you could ever do. I cannot imagine how people are able to cope with that. You know? Yeah, it, it like I yeah, like you said, I was still kind of in that questioning stage when I was doing it. And even then, it you know, once I was once like once it was over, I was like, yeah, I don't know if this is it. <laughs> like. But, and, and, and I mean, like, that's the important question, and that's the way you answer questions for yourself. But, I mean, again, like, imagine you're trying to go through this journey, but there must be players out there who have gone through it who are already gay and had to do it just, you know, as I said, to be able to keep up with the rest of the team so they don't question you. And, again, how mentally damaging is that? Oh, absolutely. I, and, like, the you know, the culture of it, like, 
that's a lot like some of the first questions guys will ask you know a recruit or something like what's your kill count again if that that's just again like when you hear that and and people might not understand like if a recruiter's saying that to you like that's just insanity yeah I, no I, it is like I can't believe that it's yeah no and like that's the you know you talk about culture it's just it's how how it has been but i've seen it changing a lot like i've had teammates that have come in you know at 21 years old that are virgins and i, I mean, imagine, imagine admitting that in a hockey dressing room before you came along like that that would have been like okay you might have well just left the state just yeah well and i've made a point and i know other people and teammates and friends that have made a point to you know be totally openly okay with that if they announce it to te- like the team and we had it happen, you know, um, and I was like, oh, cool. Like, that's awesome that you're, you know, you're waiting and you're all that. And some guys were like, what the hell? Like, are you kidding? And I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, good for you. Like, you know, make sure to, you know, <laughs> leave it open for them. Like, it's something that they can decide on. Because, again, like, if you even deviate a little from the norm in that space, things go south fast. Yeah. And you have to hear from somebody to say, yes, this is actually okay. Like in most normal space, this is, again, you hear about this in hockey and you go, okay, you know, th- that can't possibly be real. Because this doesn't happen in anywhere else. But it does in hockey. Like when, when people say hockey's not the real world, you know, we legitimately mean that. Because you hear stories like that and you go like, okay, you never get away with half this crap. Like 75% of it outside of it. You just wouldn't. So, I mean, I... I'm glad that you're saying these things because it puts words and a face to things that I have heard people talk about that I've tried to, you know, say through my own way of not having been there, but trying to be somebody who wants to advance this in the world of hockey particularly. But now I can come to this, you know, to this podcast and be like, just listen to what he says. Because what he says is happening everywhere, all across this sport. And if his experience, if he's going through this, then countless others have gone through this and how many have survived like to get to where you've gotten to right like that's the other thing i think about like the mental damage that it does to get through a sport that's already rigorous enough to begin with and you've gotten out to the other side relatively unscathed but how many others didn't you know what i mean well and like i mentioned my friend that my classmate that i graduated with that came out he would quit hockey a few years before and no one could figure out why and he said well, that that was part why. of it. He said that that was part of it. That he, you know, couldn't do hockey anymore because of the locker room culture, basically. Oh man! So now let's get to you coming out to your team, which I'll let you take away because I don't want to. I don't want to impinge on your space with this because it, it's pretty incredible what you did, and talking about all of it, I think so. So go over the day, go over the moments, and really as much of the story as you can, because this is pretty incredible. Well, I'll talk a little bit beforehand. So like kind of what brought me to it um, was, you know, I talk about that night where I had my blow up and you mentioned it. And, you know, you talk about the different emotions and like snapping. And I think, you know, all those comments and whatnot just build up this. It just made me question, you know, where I stood on the team, you know even as a leader, because 
they were talking about me behind my back and and you know finally when it boiled up to this point you know it felt like a betrayal of senses because i put so much time and effort and a lot of people you know nobody knew and so i was actually even putting in more time and effort because i was hiding you know a part of me just so that i could be better for them which maybe was true maybe wasn't but yeah that night we were out we were out at the bar and some so I heard some comments and it was it was a particularly bad night where there were a lot of them and so I was I was inebriated to say the least and on the way home uh, we went to get Taco Bell and there was a girl driving us and there was a couple guys in the tr- in the car with me and one of them made a comment and so I called him on it because I had a little extra liquid courage and I called him on it and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And we just pulled up to my apartment and I was yelling at him, telling him I knew it was bullshit. And that it, I was, you know, I was calling him right out. Like I, at that point I was like enough. And I got out of the car and I was yelling at him and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, this is ridiculous. Like you're acting crazy. And I just kept yelling at him. And finally I went back inside and that was when I, you know, threw my phone at the wall and then punched a hole in my door. And then I was full meltdown in the living room. And luckily my roommate was home and he came to like help console me. And then one of our best friends that lives above us, actually, she came down and was helping my roommate, like keep me sane. Cause I was just full meltdown, bawling, screaming, crying, couldn't breathe. Like it was, it was one of the like worst nights ever but then after you know it just that was that sense of realization like I can't live like this and so I talked to my roommate and you know the girl that was helping as well and and the next day and I said I I can't do this and they're like okay what do you want to do and I said I told them I said I'm going to tell everyone and we were done hockey at this point for the year so the uh the, the seniors, they weren't coming back. So what I did is plan to talk to um, just the returning guys. So that's what I did. I, I talked to my coach um, and I, you know, I said, I scheduled a meeting and I actually, I typed an email or like a, like a letter basically kind of similar to the speech um, on how I would tell him. And I, I sat in his office with him and I read it to him, obviously crying then. And he you know, commanded me and he was supportive and, and I'm thankful for that. And, and he said, okay, what do you want to do now? And I said, well, I think, I think I'd like to tell everyone because I can't do this. And if it's not going to change, then I can't play. And he said, well, I don't want that to happen. So let's, let's do this. And so we figured out a game plan and basically what it, we waited and I called the team meeting for all the returners in our group chat. So everyone showed up and I wasn't in the room. Um, and so I was in the off or a coach went into the room and just said, you know, Brock wants to talk to you guys. And then coach came back into his office and I was waiting in there and I had my speech written up. And so I went into the room and I said, okay, like, I know you guys, like we all hate team meetings. Like it just, it's one of those things that everyone's like, Oh my God, why are we meeting? Like this is ridiculous. But I said, I know we don't want to be here and I particularly don't want to be here either, but we're going to do it. So I just like you guys to get comfy. Um, and you know, this is about to get real. So 
and then I started reading the speech and, you know, it, early on I got away or I got it over with and just said it. And that was really hard. Like I, you know, I kept looking at my roommate. I talk about it in the speech. I kept looking at him and, and he would just be, you know, looking at me. And I just knew I had, you know, I had a person in the room with if anyone else or all the other guys turned, I knew I had him. So that was a huge, huge, incredible help. And yeah, I just, I read the speech. Um, and then when I was done, I just got up out of the chair and I said, um, thanks for listening, you guys. Um, I just want you to know I love you and I'm going to go get coach. He wants to talk to you guys now. And as I was walking out of the room, you know, one of the guys piped up and he said, said what he said in my speech or their article there. Like, basically he was like, Hey Brock, um, you know, I think I speak for everyone when we say we love you and it doesn't matter. It's not going to change anything. And we're family and that's all that matters. And then, you know, bro hug dapped it up and, and then all the guys got up and they're like, absolutely. doesn't mean shit. Like we love you buddy. And so then we had like big team hug and that was really cool. I was crying in that. And I mean, it was, it was really emotional, but it was like all the, all the good emotions, you know, like I, I got affirmation that I was human and that was okay. And then I went into my coach's office and he went into the room and he talked to them and, and I waited for him to be done and everyone left. And, and then he came back in and explained to me what had, you know, had happened when he was talking to the team. And so basically he wanted to set some expectations and, you know, get feedback from them on what they thought and how they felt and, and things like that. And, and basically he's like, I, I had to stop talking because everyone was like, no coach, like we're good with it. We don't care. Um, you know, it'll stay with us for now until he wants it to be out. And, and, you know, like we're, we're family, like we're, we're good to go. And so that was super cool to hear, you know, and, and he said that guys that don't particularly speak up a lot really spoke up and just said, we're really proud of him and we're happy. He, you know, he, he trusted us enough and felt comfortable enough to tell us. And I, that was really big for me to hear that guys that don't speak up a lot, even did it in front of coach to, to, you know, uh, confirm that it was all right, I guess. Attention, Greg Berlante. Here's your next movie. <laughs> since, since you mentioned, since you mentioned Love, Simon, which I mean, at this point, you might as well just put it in the, you know, what I, the Smithsonian, I can't remember what it's called, like the, the Register of Important Films, however the hell you would have, I don't even remember exactly what it is. But I mean, at this point, it's, it's literally been the genesis of like, I don't know, 70 coming out stories that I can read, and that's off the top of my head. So congrats, Greg. And also, can you get me to meet Robbie Rogers already? Thank you. Uh, <laughs> but also, here's your next movie. Because, I mean, that sounds like a script. Like, that sounds like the climax of a movie that you'd show at any LGBTQ film festival. But that was a real thing that happened. Yeah, it was very real. (laughs) Incredible. That is truly incredible. Like, like, like people deserve that moment. And that's, and that's a moment that, you know, after all that you get, because you don't know whether you're going to get it or not. That has to be a, a great moment of catharsis for you, but also just relief. Like your shoulders drop. You walk everywhere with your shoulders a little bit tighter and then they just drop. And now for the first time, you can live, you know, actually as a human being, as opposed to somebody that isn't, you know, what you were putting out publicly wasn't actually what you are. Yeah, and, absolutely. So it's like, it's like legitimately like the first day of the rest of your life in many ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, 
I said it before it, it was like, yeah, a weight lifted off my shoulders to just be able to know that people knew and they didn't care. And I could live authentically and, and say things I wanted to say, you know, like I'll still make jokes about like, you know, being gay kind of thing, but it's, and like, it's not, it's not in a bad way. It's, it's those funny jokes that, you know, some people say about liking bigger women or anything like that. It's, you know, it's a more a poke at yourself than anything. I have made many jokes about this on this show, particularly about a certain website that most people who like men have watched at times in the past. So gives you an idea. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's also the same thing I've told people with Jewish jokes. I'm like, I can make them. Well, I am. You can't necessarily. It's how <laughs> yeah. we make fun of ourselves. And also, I, the other part of this that I think is really interesting that I want to get to, which was, you can ask me questions because don't lie to yourself, you've got questions. I think that's something else that is really important. And I heard it with Colin Martin when he came out to his team, and you got people from all different backgrounds in soccer, and they asked questions. That's important because I think for a lot of these people, like, what is their closest association with anybody who's gay, anybody who's out? They might not have that. So now they get to ask the questions, and I can imagine some of them were pretty dumb. But these are questions that you probably needed to answer, and you didn't answer it angrily. It's just these people don't know. How were they supposed to? And you can give them the answers that will help them understand the community a little bit better and understand you a little bit better. Yeah, it, it was it was kind of funny. Like, I, you know, I got a few chuckles, and, like, I laughed when I was saying it because I knew, I knew that, there was probably already questions brewing in people's heads and it just came out and I was kind of laughing and I heard a couple laughs in the room and, and I did, I got questions after, you know, mostly when people got enough liquid courage to, to ask me, we'd be at the bar or something. Of course. But, of course. Yeah. But I mean, fair enough, if that's what it takes and you want to know, and I'm the person you want to ask, then that's good. Give her. <laughs> I mean, you have to, I mean, because for these people, it's like, Again, like, what, what are they supposed to do? How are they supposed to know? They, they don't, unless they find it out on their own. And these people are not ones who are going to try to find it out on their own, necessarily. Do you have an example of those questions that they were asking you? Oh, I mean, I, I get the basic ones, you know, about, like, when did you know and, and things like that. But you also get some, some pretty detailed ones that make you wonder if they, you know, have looked into it themselves. Oh, you have to mention this now. You have to mention it now. Well, I mean, you know, they'll ask a lot about sex and, and things like that. and What? It works the same way. Yeah, it's but you'd be surprised people didn't know. I mean, well, listen, as I said, for me, maybe for some of them, they never had the chance to ask their own questions to themselves. And now, they, and now they've understood that, you know what? It really ain't that bad. Yeah, exactly. It's still pretty good no matter what. I have to, I, I mean, that's what being bisexual is like. I love it because then I, I, I joke that, you know, Everything about me, God knew that uh, I was going to strike out with one, so he gave me a chance to open up the playing field, which is a really <laughs> bad joke, but, it's, but it, it, works, it works for my purposes. So this was in 2019, so this was about a year ago. Yep. So Actually, what... pretty much right around now. Yeah, yeah it makes about sense. It's the, end of, it's the end of April. I see that. So now we get to fast forward a bit. As you are suffering from the bubonic plague, I you now get to the point where you want to start talking about doing what you did coming out publicly. So what was the spur to get you to do that? 
I don't actually know. I've been, um, I followed the out sports for quite a while and I'd see the quotes on Instagram and whatnot. And I thought it was super interesting. And, but I never, you know, I could never see anyone that I related to really like at all. You know, there was rarely hockey to relate to. There were again, that group is zero. Right. Right. And, you know, there was hardly any hockey players. And if they were, you know, there's a couple of stories of like trans hockey players, which I thought was super cool. And, you know, they're accepting communities. And, you know, I just, I never had anyone I could really relate to, but I, you know, it was cool to read the stories and whatnot. And I literally just Facebook messaged the Instagram account and said, how do I share my story? And it just, he, he was super awesome, like super helpful and, you know, asked a lot of really good questions and, and, you know, spurred me on to, to write the, the whole article. And then he, in it, saw that I wrote a speech and he asked if I had a speech. And, you know, there's parts of it that are missing that, you know, will stay between us and that's fine. It's kind of more personal. Um, but he wanted to have that in there and, and I read through it and I was okay with everything that went through it. But he, he was adamant that he needed that in there because it just was so impactful and, and so I'm glad and I'm thankful and yeah it, it was kind of kind of more of a whim one night and you know I've been watching um or like following a little bit of like Ryan O'Callaghan with football mm-hmm. and, and his support and everything and you know also like you talked about that player um with the Manchester Storm that came out as bisexual and Zach and, Sullivan hi Zach yeah Zach Sullivan yeah um, and, you know, and that, that kind of inspired me too, because he actually played on a team with a guy that I played with junior hockey with. That's how small the hockey world is. That's hilarious. It is. And that's that the, funny thing. yeah, the funny thing about the hockey community is it's so small and he's in England and I, you know, this guy lives 50 minutes from me and Lloyd and he played over there with him and I saw he was on the same team and, you know, their whole team was supporting. So I thought that was pretty cool because in, to be honest, the guy, I'm, you know, I doubt he'll listen, but he was one person that I did not suspect would be a very supportive person, but maybe he will now. I'm glad to see he is. Yeah. Along the way anyway. And and again, like I, I, again, there's four current or former professional hockey players out. There's a second Brock, Brock McGillis. So that's what mentioned seven or eight. Congrats. I'm paying your per diem for the week, Brock. There you go. Um, (laughs) We have. Um, goalie in Denmark, John Lee Olsen. We have Zach Sullivan and Yanni Pohaka, who's a Finnish forward, who I desperately want on this show. And uh, I hope one day we'll ha- make that happen. That's four. And then I've got you. And, I mean, even then, I cannot think of many others. I mean, I've, there are stories. And we talk about Harrison Brown, and that's an amazing story. There's women. But that's a different world. And I try to separate, you know, the worlds of, of male sports and, and female sports. And then the, the transgender community is a completely different animal. And you could listen to my show with Chris Moser about that. And there will be more trans guests on this show in the future. I, these worlds are different. But for male hockey, like, that's all you have. Like, if you are in football, you have at least a litany of examples of former players that are and current people who are somewhere around your age. In baseball, you've got Billy Bean. That's someone. In basketball, you've got Jason Collins. You've got John Amici. You have examples. Like, in soccer, you've got Colin Martin. You've got Robbie Rogers. You've got Thomas Itzelberger. You've got people. You know, you've got examples. In hockey, you have no one. So, for someone like you, who's growing up now, at even if it's not anybody at, you know, the highest levels, that it, you know, who cares? You now at least have some example of somebody who's gone through this. And how important is that for somebody? Because, again, like, what if you're 
a hockey player now out there and you're even somewhat going through a version of this story and everybody in hockey probably is going to go through a version of this story you're going to then now see Brock's story and go yeah that makes sense and Brock McGillis when I texted him this story um, when we were talking about it last Tuesday and I joked with him I'm like you were even more right than you knew about all that you were talking about and that's the first one who came out and and he's on every single platform and and that's again I that's kind of crazy when you think about just how far hockey is even removed from sports and and my new joke about it is if sports are the final boss for the LGBT community to beat and beat all the stereotypes right then hockey's the super boss the one that you have to beat after you beat the game you got to train up to level 8 you got to get the best sword best shield I don't know if you ever play RPGs, but that's the best joke I can make about it. Because that's yeah. what it kind of feels like. Yeah, basically. I mean, there, it's uh, it's come a long ways, though. And, and, you know, it is bad. But I can think of a few people. You know, you talk about Brock McGillis. Um, I know Brent Sopel. He was the first person to take the Stanley Cup to a Pride Parade. And I actually know Brent Sopel. I went, I've been to his camps and he's from Saskatchewan. And again, that's there, there you go. Hockey's smallest community in the world. Yeah. And, well, number two of probably what, maybe 50 in this show that I haven't even picked up on yet. Yeah. Saskatchewan kicks out a lot of uh, hockey players, highest per capita province or state. So just so you that know, would make, that makes sense to me, even though it's the one that's got like the most love of the CFL with the, with the rough riders. Again, amazing that I know that, but you know, once you start following hockey, you learn everything about Canada in about 10 seconds. Uh, I mean, yeah, but, yeah, I mean, you see that, I mean, brain Holpe, of course that, that too. I mean, that's yeah. My, well, he lives about 25 minutes from us, like his family Jesus farm. Christ. That's number three. And my brother played bantam hockey with him. That's hilarious. Okay, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to tamp down the laughter at this point because it's getting really like hockey is the smallest world in the history of worlds. Like yeah, that, my, that's that's really funny. Yeah, my sister worked on their family farm for a couple of years. <laughs> like that's four. God, yeah. if you were going to do a drinking game based on this, you'd be dead within two minutes. Well, we were talking before the show there about. Uh, Corey Cross had messaged me, you know, support, and he's from around the area, and also Wade Redden's from around this area. He's from about 40 minutes away. Wade he's, from, he's from a smaller town in Saskatchewan than I am. Wait, and my God. They bought my – Corey Cross and Wade Redden used to have a golf tournament in Lloyd, and to support local, they would buy a 4-H steer, um, and so they actually bought my champion steer my first year 4-H, so – Okay. You're going to have to explain what that is to people who don't live in, well, places like you do, because I live in, again, an area 20 minutes away from a large city. None of that made sense. Yeah, so 4-H is like, uh, it's like an outlet kind of thing. Um, you have, you know, there's a, a whole variety of things. You can do small engine or, or horses or uh, beef or uh, art or sewing. Like there's a million different projects under 4-H. Um, and it's all across Canada and the United States. And it's it's something we do uh, with beef cattle on my farm. And growing up, I did it. And you go to this, you know, final show where you show your steer. And and I did. And I won. I won the expo, which is like the huge show where, you know, there was 200 and some steers there. So there's 200 and some under 21, between 9 and 21 uh, year olds showing their cattle. And I won that. And I'm, I'm sorry. This is just this is this is making me. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at this story. And oh, it's how, like it's, it's so, so for my world. It's crazy. 
Yeah. Anyway, you go to do this final, uh, the sale at the end of the show and I won champion. So I went first and it's usually, usually the champion is the highest seller. And I, I set a record that year and it's previously been beaten. Um, but yeah, it was pretty cool. And Wade Redden and Corey Cross bought it for their, that was their beef for the charity golf tournament. That is kind of amazing. And also kind of expected based on the hour (laughs) and a bit that we've been doing this. But that's, but that's fine. I don't care. These are the stories I like having on this show. And this show is going to end up getting picked up by some Canadian news network. I can only imagine. And this is going to be told again, and it's going to be hilarious. Or maybe this is the step up for you to do bigger and better podcasts. It's probably going to be that. I don't really care at this point because I've gotten so much out of this already. And I now have to ask the other question, which is you had a boyfriend for a while. And I think, okay, so you said you had two years. So one of them was before you came out to anybody on your team. And now you've had, so let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. How how, how Um, has that been for you? Oh, it's been great. Like, I mean, I love them. We're, we're still doing good. Like we've been dating just shy of two years. It'll be two years in July. Um, and he actually came and visited last year in the fall and again in the spring. And I think that's kind of when, you know, the rumors extra took off is when he came and visited. Um, just cause you know, it was difficult to explain to people who he was, you know, he was my friend. Like we're obviously really good friends, but he's also my boyfriend. And so that was that was tough. It was tough for him and it was tough for me because I, you know, I I shorted him on on that and I I wish I didn't. Um but it's brought us, you know, to where we are and that's fine and and he's okay with it. We've talked about it. So is he Canadian or American? He's Canadian. He's from uh, Calgary, Alberta. Okay, yes. I we know where Calgary is, but that's yeah. okay. So 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 you can see each other without, you know, having to violate multiple laws which is good. Uh, no, right now we're... Oh, actually, wait. I, I take that back. I think in Canada, borders are closed between provinces. I caught that well, in a second. They're not... I don't think they're technically closed right now, but it's like if you cross the border, you have to quarantine for 14 days. But see, it's I, it's a weird situation here because Lloydminster is... Half of it's in Saskatchewan and half of it's in Alberta. So you could live in the Saskatchewan side and go to the co-op, which is on the Alberta side. And I am not going to quarantine... For 14 days to go to the grocery store that's uh again not, i mean technically there are states here that are doing that but i mean i could still if i wanted to cross the border and go into pennsylvania although what the hell would i be doing at this point there's nothing to see uh, <laughs> unless i wanted to drive around the airport and see how oh look that's empty today it's bizarre uh, yeah i'm glad i don't have to do that but so i mean so you're away from him now but i mean the fact that, I mean, again, there's the other part of it, which is like, you can't like be public with your own, with your own partner because of things that are happening that, you know, that are out of your control even. And I mean, you couldn't like live a, like a great relationship for like eight months, nine months. Yeah. You it was hide it. like, That's you know, not- he, made, he made his first Instagram appearance on my page. I don't even remember when, but it was a big day. He like screenshot it and he's like, Oh my God. I was like, yeah, relax. That's that's amusing, but again, like that that's part of this story too. Uh, again, there's so many things that are incredible. This story. When I go back after I'm done editing this show, and I'm gonna go for the, you know, here is the time codes for you want to listen to this. It's gonna be like I don't know longer than the Declaration of Independence at this point. 
or longer than the, the charter that I can't remember what it actually is. The charter that made Canada, you know, sovereign in 1967, whatever the hell that's called. The reason why Canada Day is July 1st, but whatever. That, that yeah. joke didn't work the way I was hoping it would. Um, but, well, I, I try. I try. Uh, maybe this will be the story on the new hockey night in Canada now that Don Cherry's not there anymore. Um, yeah. McLean would like to tell it. Um, but I mean, I already joked. You've got friends in high places at a, at a sports net before we did this show, which is which is great. So this story has definitely made the rounds. Have you heard from anybody? Uh, you already mentioned a couple. Did you hear from anybody else who you were going? Wow, I can't believe I just heard from them when this when this hit Twitter. Um, not not like a bunch of you know like super famous people or people that I never expected or or you know people that I've idolized or anything like that. Um, but you know, there's been a lot of you know. Um, I guess like, well, mostly, I guess like Instagram people that have like followed me or messaged me and, and, you know, shown support and whatnot, but you know, I guess I'll keep going with it and see where it takes me. I mean, it it's, could take you some great places and I hope it does because that's again, like the importance of this story, I think in every one of the guests I had has a great story. And everybody's got a unique story to tell. But because hockey is so weird and so insular, it's like your story could, as we joked, could effectively be almost anyone's story, right? Like, so this story feels like some version of it is about to be told by someone else in, I don't know, who knows what Canadian province in Massachusetts, Illinois, Michigan, anywhere where hockey is widely played, you know? And that's, again, I think that that's really huge because it puts... As I said before, and will continue to say, like this puts a name and a story of a human being into places where we could only put hypotheticals previously. And I could tell to anybody, like there are gay people out there in hockey. There's a gay player in the NHL right now. There's just no statistical way there isn't. But the hypotheticals don't mean anything to anybody. This kind of story means everything. Because now you get to see what a human being has gone through and how they've emerged from the other side and and that's important so as we start to wrap this up although i wish i could do this forever because this is one of the most amazing interviews that i've done and that's no offense to anybody else but this one it touches so many things that you know a lot of us who follow the sport want to see happen and we're closer to it than we've ever been but that's starting at the center of the earth and getting to somewhat to near the ground level now for you i want you to do two things first if there are other gay players out there in hockey, and there are, what would you be telling them right now? What do you need to do to keep, not just to keep yourself safe, but what do you need to do to get to where you've been and to get to the point where you feel like you can be accepted in this space and feel like you can be safe playing the sport you love while also being yourself? Well, that's a tough one. I mean, you know, like the first thing, like feel free to reach out if you ever want to talk. Um, but next, you know, I talk a lot about my roommate and, you know, my friends that have been supportive through it. And I think it's important, you know, whether it's your roommate, uh, if that's your teammate to, or not, to have someone like that that, you know, you can have a safe space with. And that was a big thing is I had that safe space for an extra year because my roommate knew. So I could come home and be safe there and comfortable and not have to worry. Um, so that helped. Um, but I guess, you know, the, the hockey world's ever changing um, and it seems to be heading in the right direction. So 
if you know if you have someone you trust and and you know maybe maybe it just comes up in conversation about oh you uh you had a friend come out or something like that and just see how people respond and if you can find someone that you know maybe has a friend or a family member somebody that's in the community then that might be a safe person to talk to um you know i can't guarantee that but i know I had a lot of friends and the teammates that I came out to talked about that. They have friends from back home and, you know, I have teammates from Vancouver and Toronto and things like that. Like they, they know gay people. It's not a, it's not a, you know, Bigfoot style thing. Um, not anymore, thankfully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I guess that would kind of be my advice and, you know, feel free to reach out because every situation is different and I've, you know, I've talked to people and their situation is different and, and that's fine and you know it might it might take a while but that's that's all right it's a journey it is definitely a journey and in in this sport we there are other people out there and we're excited to hear those stories and hopefully this is the genesis for many more people starting to tell them and as i said it, it only makes it easier because once you've told your story it's about then helping others it's you, at a point you, you're not coming out necessarily at that point for yourself you're coming out for the many other people and, and then in a space like this where it just the examples mean so much like that's that's what this story is and that's why i hope this story takes off into even into bigger places and i hope it does because it can give it can give people an idea that when we when we talk about the culture of hockey being what it is you know brock mcgillis again this is like mentioned number 15 congrats maybe i will be your business manager next time with how many times i've mentioned your name on this show that's a running joke between us that has gone back a couple of years uh when you think about, and he mentioned this when he talks to the kids in these schools in, in Ontario, he's like, he realizes when he mentions hockey, everybody sits up and listens a little bit closer. Because in many ways, like, Canada and hockey are inseparable. The <laughs> national identity is forged with that. And I, as much as we, you know, you can joke about that, it's true. So when you talk about, you know, people like me or people that have been, you know, very vocal against hockey culture, Certain people might see that as, oh, you're attacking me personally. You're attacking my fundamental ideals. And when you do that, questioning things that people had taken sacred, what happens? Your brain goes into fight or flight, and you fight for what you knew. And that's what happens when you attack hockey in many ways. And that's what people perceive. But that's not really what we're doing. What we're trying to do is say, well, this, these, this, everything has warts. And maybe some people don't want to see those warts. But particularly when you talk about hockey in Canada, like that's the way he put it to me. And uh, I, I can't put it any better than that. And I don't know. Can you put it any better than that? No, I mean, it is like you say, but it is ever changing. And, and it's it's fascinating to see, you know, the generation before um, starting to be advocates for it. You know, even if they're not playing still, you know, they're still highly connected. You know, I talked about Brent Sobel taking the cup to pride in Chicago after they won the cup. And that was a huge thing. And it actually sparked a lot of controversy because in the hockey community, because that was like, why would you ever do that? But it was in memory of Brian Burke's son. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was fascinating because it not only showed respect for Brian Burke, but also his son. And it also, you know, began like a challenging of the mindset. And, you know, why, why can't the hockey community be accepting and supportive you know, you can, there's a difference between accepting something and also being supportive. So I think that kind of, you know, for me anyway, was like a, a kickstart to seeing the community grow. And I think he's done a good job for that. And he's 
currently being a, an amazing advocate for dyslexia because he has it and he you know he was supposed to speak to president trump but then this whole covid thing happened so and then the plague happened yeah exactly and, and here we are the plague that's terrible well yeah. the, other, the other thing i will mention is would you have ever expected Brian Burke to his personality to be one of the best advocates for the LGBT community in hockey? And if, and if it was just me getting into hockey and seeing who Brian Burke was and laughing, and now I look back and like, really? Oh, that, that's funny. But then again, it shows you what you think of people is not necessarily what they are. And that's, and that's the best example of that. And the second thing, and we'll try to end it here on this, but I have no idea whether I'm going to end this or not because <laughs> this, this show has been crazy good and I wish it could go on longer. Uh, what would you say to people who are not gay but are involved in hockey? How can you best be an advocate? How can you best help people like you or people who are going to be the next you in telling their stories, not just hockey, but maybe publicly? Like, how can you best support them? What are the things you could do? Obviously, language is huge, but what are some of the other things that you would say to people? Here's what you can do to make these people feel more accepted and safer. Um, I think, you know, yeah, language first off, you mentioned it already. It's it's huge. Try to minimize it, like the, the negative, and using it in a, you know, a malicious way. Um, you know, there's words we use all the time, but, you know, it's it's the intent of the words and, and context. But also, I think, you know, maybe if you know or think somebody might be closeted or, you know, thinking about coming out, um, ask them you know maybe that's just enough for them to find a safe space and be like oh like they're okay with it or you know maybe share some stories about people you know or articles you saw about people coming out and you know applaud those kind of things and that courage and and just show that you're willing to be a safe space for someone and to encourage and support and and that kind of thing because you know it's nice to know like my roommate before i told him it like it petrified me we both had a breakdown that night about completely different things and told each other two very deep truths and but i knew leading into that night like i knew he'd be okay with it but it was just like holy crap i still have to do this and we did you know he told me something very personal and i told him something very personal and that brought us ever closer mm-hmm and everybody's got something like that. And here's, I guess, the final Brock McGillis mention on the show until you end up going speaking with him at, at elementary and middle schools everywhere, which is, you know what? He's going to ask you to do it. So just when, once we can now leave our houses and leave our areas, you, you, should, you should do that just, just once. But actually, I think it'll be really good if you do. It is a pretty incredible, just, just to see this story, it's just was is so great for for me as somebody who just wants to see more of this in hockey but also again it's the example it's the example it's the fact that i now don't have to speak in hypotheticals anymore and like these people exist and if you can think of anything more like again joking stereotypically canadian than this <laughs> there isn't there isn't one so if this is the story i've got from stereotypical rural canada then you're going to see it everywhere that, that, I think, also helps out. As I said, this is why it's going to be picked up by every single Canadian news network there is, eventually. But that's good for you. You already know what it's like because you got interviewed by them because you had the plague. Yeah, I guess. I Well, I did, too. I had phone interviews, and they wanted to do Skype interviews, but I don't look particularly great with this COVID hair I got going on. And 
Well, my I haven't had a haircut in like three months, and uh, that's that's not good. But I don't I don't, I don't care about that. Yeah, I'm running to the end of my patience here. I did my dad's hair the other day with my beard trimmer, so. Oh, good lord! I can't. I'm not even going to think about trying that. That would be a that would. It actually turned out okay. I even got compliments on. I sent some Snapchats to people, and they were loving it. And now I can make a joke about this, but I'm not going to, <laughs> because every single person listening to this show just thought the same thing. Yeah. So, so there you go. It's fine. It it doesn't matter. But we have to point out when the jokes are obvious, because you know that's the only way we're going to stay sane. <laughs> yeah, I'm finding that. I'm finding. I'm. I've been trying to humor myself more and and I think it's working and I'm also getting some sun which is nice I well, it's raining here it was nice yesterday not not terrible and does the sun come out in, in that part of Canada and okay it does yeah for I'm, kidding. I'm kidding you'll have more sun than I will by the time we get to July and hopefully by that point we'll at least be allowed to leave our houses or uh, anyway one can hope um, I'll give you a chance to plug yourself uh, we're going to have more amazing conversations at other points, perhaps now on Twitter, but uh, since this podcast has been interrupted by a family member of mine as I was trying to record this, uh, this is a good time to then realize that it probably should be time to end. Uh, and also, we are an hour away from all the food stores closing, so I need to get dinner. Uh, anyway, <laughs> give you a chance to plug yourself. Uh, please do that because there are many people who would like to speak with you, I would think now, so give yourself a chance. Well, I don't even know. What, what do you want to hear? Do you want to... Give everybody your Twitter, your Instagram, your your email address. Have people that. Oh, what? I don't even know what my Instagram. Just search Brock Weston. Um, oh, okay. I'll do it for you. If you're going to place the, zero, the the O's with zeros and the E with a three. Yeah. There you go. My Twitter is bwesty underscore five. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah, I've been getting a ton of emails uh, since the article came out. It's in the Outsports article. Yeah, it's b underscore rock underscore fourteen at yahoo.ca. I have it open to save you from yourself. It's right. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not a big uh, put in a plug for myself guy. That's new for me. Well, that's that's again. We're gonna end it as we started. You're a hockey player. Hockey players don't plug themselves. <laughs> yeah. Perfectly okay. But this is amazing. I I again for all the people that I'm gonna have on this show and all the people I've had on this show, like they're all amazing in one way or another. But this was truly incredible and i'm so happy and i know there are a lot of people who are going to be really excited to listen to this in the future and hopefully again this is the start of something pretty good in the sport thank you brock good luck with your um social distancing when you don't actually have to do any because you live in the middle of nowhere <laughs> thank you yeah no thanks for having me i appreciate it and i appreciate what you're doing for you know the whole lgbtq plus community i'm trying to do my small part and uh, you're doing a lot more than i am you are doing a lot more than I am. We will talk again soon, and trust me, there will be more great shows coming. I don't know if we're going to have as many great stories as we had today, but we're going to have some pretty amazing guests in the future. So enjoy. Again, hopefully, by the time we release the next show, there might be less social distancing we have to do. I don't know. And also, by the way, one last note. I've interviewed somebody who had COVID-19, and that's like the 10th most interesting thing that came out on this show. <laughs> yeah, make sure to put a plug in there. It'll probably spread quick. Uh, I would have met out. Should we say spreading quickly? Is that, are we allowed to say that now? Yeah, it's too soon, too soon. I guess so. Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs>